kitty 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 you hear that that's the sound of my fucking eyeballs about to fall out of my head because i'm just clenching my entire body so hard (laughs) yeah it's uh, that's a good intro as always this is aaron mansfield and i'm here with my co-host derek daywan smith tell everybody hey derek hey everybody welcome to another episode of Watch If You Dare, where this week we are going to be discussing 1999's Audition by director Takeshi Miike. Yeah, this absolutely is our first Japanese horror movie, isn't it? Yes, and of all the movies so far, this is probably going to be the one that we 100% get some kind of hate mail for, because there's no good way to discuss this movie without, like, stepping on some toes or getting something wrong. So this is just going to be, like, a bear with this one. Yeah, I mean, between... I I cannot pronounce shit to save my life right up top, so I'm just going to say that right now. And then on top of that, some of the topics in this movie are quite heavy, and some of the scene... There's one scene in particular, I'm jumping way ahead, but I even gagged a little while watching it, so... But we'll get to that down the line. Oh, yeah. So, that being said, uh, what have you been watching, reading, listening to, consuming lately? So, yeah, lately I've been uh, focusing on video games, trying to catch up on my backlog with that. Um, I finally did completely, like, beat Resident Evil 2. I didn't, like, 100% completionist it, but I beat all four scenarios, uh, scenario A and B or scenario 1 and 2. For both Claire and Leon, I beat the fourth survivor mode with Hunk. And I played, like, the little side story D- free DLCs that came out, too, and beat all three of those. Is is Hunk the name of an actual character, or is that, like, the pet name that fans give him? It's a code name. Like, he's a, okay. uh, he's like an Umbrella Corps Black Ops type of guy, okay. and the only thing you know is his code name is Hunk. In the original Resident Evil 2, when you beat the game, you'd unlock a mode where you play as him, like him him also escaping Raccoon City, and they, they brought it back for the remake. Once again, the remake was easily one of the best horror movies I've played, or horror movies, horror games i played in quite a while. They fucking nailed it. It's definitely my top game so far for 2019. We'll see if that gets dethroned. If Cyberpunk 2077 by a miracle comes out this year, that might be the one to beat. But another game that actually people kind of, uh, it didn't get too much fanfare. People kind of passed over it a little bit, but I really enjoyed it. It's this game called, and this is the full title, The Missing J.J. Macfield and the Island of Memories. And Mansfield, you might want to uh, download this game because it's a it's a digital. I don't think they ever released a physical copy of it. Okay. I could be wrong, but it's on Switch, PlayStation 4, Xbox One, even Windows. That title is just making me think that it's like some kind of like room-to-room puzzle game kind of thing, like Myst. You're on the right track. It just reminds me of all this generic, like, computer PC game boxes from the 90s. Yeah, so it does take elements from that. I wanted to recommend this one too specifically because I think Heather would also like this game. Like, y'all playing it together, I could just see both of y'all enjoying it. Basically, the premise is that you play as this uh, this woman. Her name is J.J. Macfield. She is a college student or just out of college and her friend and love interest Emily they're going on a camping trip to this island I think off of Maine off the east coast somewhere she wakes up 
and her friend is missing, and so she starts looking for her friend. At one point, and this is very early on in the game, this isn't a a spoiler or anything, she gets struck by lightning and finds out that she cannot die. She's unkillable on this island. So it's a puzzle game. It's a puzzle platformer game. It's third person, so on a 2D plane, so it's like, you know, Mario or Sonic the Hedgehog. But it's all uh, puzzle and platforming, and the way you solve these puzzles is by inflicting wounds on yourself. You get your arm purposely cut off by a saw so you can use your arm to throw it on a platform to, like, lower the platform or like you completely eviscerate your whole body so you're just your head and that way you can like roll into a crate that only your head can fit in what? to get to like a switch and at any point with the press of a button you can restore like regenerate your entire body or regenerate whatever limbs you're missing like lizard regenerate like you just grow another or your body parts all like slurp back together like a slinky like the body parts that are missing on screen just like disappear and then you regrow everything and you like regenerate everything huh the art direction and everything with this game is very, very well done because as gory as the sounds, and it is very fucked up. I mean, it's literally like a queer subtext story of a woman ripping herself apart to find her friend and love interest. So there's yeah. a, it's a heavy game. But like the thing that they do is anytime she gets inflicted with a serious wound, the silhouette of her of your character of her goes from colored and like a person to more of a shadow and like all the blood it becomes white like gushing blood is white instead of red so it's very stylized and well done but even then it still feels a little more fucked up by the fact that you can't really see like the gore for what it is in reality and instead it's more of like this dreamlike logic yeah there's a lot of horror elements in this game there's very few enemies but some of the enemies that you encounter in the game are really fucked up grotesque monsters it's a touch of Silent Hill, Mist, all rolled up into one because a lot of the monsters also, you can tell, kind of have a deeper subtext or context to, to JJ herself. And throughout the game, you're also receiving text messages on your phone. And some of the text messages are like ones that are happening in the present, but others are ones that like were in the past and you find out more about her, uh, JJ's backstory. And it kind of starts slowly piecing itself together as to what happened and why you're on this island and why things are the way they are. There's a few twists, so I don't want to go too much more into it. I highly, highly recommend this, especially if you uh, like puzzle platforming games. The puzzles are not at all difficult. I was able to get through it pretty much without ever having to like go on YouTube or use a guide. I think there was maybe one part that I was kind of stumped on, but it took me about 20 minutes and I got through it. But yeah, I highly recommend it. The story is fantastic. It's a great story. And I honestly got a little teary-eyed at the ending. The ending is is bittersweet, but very well earned and very satisfying. And yeah, all the feels. It made me feel so much when, when the game ended. So I can't recommend that game enough. Cool. Yeah, I'll definitely check it out. I don't have a ton of time to play games right now, as we've discussed before, but I know that that's something that Heather would be super interested in playing, so... And it doesn't take much time. I think it took me, like, six or seven hours to beat, maybe, and I'm kind of crappy when it comes to puzzles and video games, so it might even take you less time than it took me. Cool. Well, yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. Oh, and one more thing I also wanted to bring up. So I I mentioned in past episode or episodes that Archie started doing like their own horror comics line and started with like Archie with uh, Archie Afterlife and Jughead the Hunger and all that. I finally got my hands on those and I have not actually had time to read them yet, but I've, I've got them now. 
Yeah, so they're all they're all great, but a new one just dropped and it's called Blossoms 666. It follows the twins, Cheryl and Jason Blossom, who are characters within the Archie universe, and them being part like their whole family actually being like satanic, like worship Satan satanic, not Lave satanic. Guess who the writer is? It's fucking Cullen Bunn. That dude is all over horror. So yeah, I highly recommend that one too. Just had to throw that out. Awesome. I'll definitely check it out. I did start reading Archie versus Predator, and that one was pretty fun. So, yeah, as far as stuff that I've been checking out lately, I rewatched a couple of Larry Cohen movies this past couple of weeks. Some of you have probably seen we posted on our Facebook and Twitter. We have lost Larry Cohen, who was a very interesting writer, director, producer. His movies are not the most well-known, but they are all very, very interesting. And they're movies that we will probably cover on this podcast someday. His knack for satire and the things that he's skewering in his movies are all super interesting, but the way that he puts his movies together are also fascinating, especially just his, like, crazy pirate attitude in the 70s of just, you know, we're not going to get film permits, just go film in the streets of New York, who cares? Um, you know, the, oh yeah, we're just going to take machine guns up to the top of the Chrysler building and film a bunch of dudes shooting guns on the roof for cue the winged serpent and just hopefully we don't get arrested. <laughs> That's crazy. But yeah, super interesting stuff. A lot of it is available on streaming if you go look for it. But I rewatched God Told Me To. That's one of his darker movies for sure, but it gets so strange and weird. Uh, The basic premise is that there are all these people committing murders, and then when they are finally kind of caught, the only explanation that they give for their actions is that God told them to. You have a New York cop played by Tony LaBianca who's been hunting down these different cases and kind of trying to tie them together, and the ultimate reasons behind everything are really strange and really weird and i guarantee you it is not what you expect he's also got more fun stuff like cue the winged serpent which i also rewatched. it's literally just a giant quetzalcoatl winged dragon thing from aztec legend that's eating people in new york <laughs> are a lot of his movies do they take place in new york uh a lot do um not all of them though but a lot do there's also the stuff which i'm pretty sure i've mentioned on the podcast before which is definitely skewering a lot of our like food and advertising culture the premise is that some company basically comes out with this new product called the stuff and it's just gross kind of melty white marshmallow fluff ice cream goop that comes in cartons like you would buy ice cream and people just eat that and eventually it kind of rots their brain and turns them into weird zombies yeah all of his movies are very fun and interesting and there's some great satire going on underneath the surface even his non-horror stuff like black caesar and hell up in harlem and bone are all really really intriguing movies definitely a shame that you know he's gone but he had a really solid career of great stuff to go back on um besides that um, as some of y'all have probably seen by now on our Facebook, my wife Heather and I got to go see Joe Bob Briggs as he gave a speech at the Crossroads Film Festival in Jackson, Mississippi. So the speech that he was given that night was not specifically horror-related, but it did tie into horror. Um, he was discussing the history and influence of redneck culture in cinema called 
how rednecks saved Hollywood. And so he kind of discusses how just the general history of where the term redneck came from, what that term encompasses, who the actual people are that we consider rednecks, where they came from originally over in like England, Scotland, Ireland, and definitely talking about how a lot of that culture is rooted in alcohol, bootlegging, and a general spirit of anti-establishment, anti-authoritarian kind of sentiment, and how that kind of bled over into popular culture. I'm assuming Texas Chainsaw came up at some point during this. So yes, definitely. Um, He definitely mentioned Texas Chainsaw for a while. It starts kind of with things like Lil Abner comic strips getting adapted into movies, which apparently Lil Abner was the first comic book movie. Wow, okay, that's a good bit of knowledge to know. It kind of starts off with this, like, goofy comedic fascination with hillbillies and rednecks, but eventually kind of becomes this cool outlaw Burt Reynolds kind of thing, and there's also the kind of that other horror strain where you have a lot of these tropes that we're used to seeing with, like, exploitation, where you have people who are physically deformed from either inbreeding or just deeper real-world scars from World War II and Korea with people coming back with various disabilities and disfigurements. Um, and people just being psychologically scarred that expresses itself in different ways. So a lot of that real-world stuff bled over into the pop culture idea of rednecks. You then have things like Deliverance and Texas Chainsaw, and everything kind of goes from there. So it was a great talk. We got to meet him afterward. Super awesome guy. I was definitely, like, fanboyed a little bit to see him. But yeah, it was a great time. I'm glad he came. Fun to see him. So a couple of things, like while you were mentioning uh, the movies earlier, I definitely went ahead and added God Told Me To and the stuff on our list (laughs) just to do down the line because I really want to check both those movies out. Just kind of Google imaging searching and looking at them a little bit while you were discussing them. So yeah, um, that's kind of what I've been into lately. Let's kind of, before we start talking about the actual, actual movie, this, like you mentioned, is our first Japanese horror movie. I mean, this is our first foreign horror movie so far. Well, we, we've done British, but but this, yeah, is, the this first is our first foreign non-English. language. Yeah. yeah, this is our first yeah. non-English horror movie thus far. One thing that excites me about doing foreign horror, specifically stuff that comes from Eastern countries and just cultures that are completely different than what we're used to, There is a lot of room for stuff being lost in translation and cultural things that we just don't understand. But there's something about that that makes the movie that much more effective when you're not 100% clued into what's going on or you don't have the necessary context for things. I definitely remember the first time that I saw the movie that we're going to talk about. And A, thinking in my head, oh, this looks very normal to me on the surface. Like, it looks very modern. This doesn't look like what in my head is Japan. Because I grew up watching Kung Fu and a lot of samurai stuff and just things that were period. Um, So in my head, just the idea of like a very modern Tokyo that looks like New York, essentially, was just not there. And a lot of where this movie starts and how it kind of transforms over the course of the runtime, I was really confused by what I was watching. And then 
I literally was kind of stumbling in the dark and then walked off a fucking cliff. <laughs> so uh, there was something about this movie that just kind of transfixed me and put a really strange spell on me. And I had not seen anything like it at all. Um, I definitely saw this years later, but since then I have definitely dug into Asian horror specifically, and there's a lot of good stuff in there that we are going to be getting around to eventually. Newer, older, just the whole gamut, but we are definitely going to be doing a lot more going forward, because I think it at least... It makes for some good conversation around what are we looking at when we're not even 100% sure of the cultural stuff. So it's going to be at least fun to dive into from a research standpoint. Well, and even then, folklore done, especially from Eastern countries, uh, Japan specifically, the whole idea of a ghost even, just the basic basic concept of a ghost. It's totally different. It's totally different than the concept of a ghost in American horror movies or even British horror movies. And for me... Oftentimes, I find that the Japanese concept of a ghost is way more terrifying than the American concept of a ghost. But that's another thing, too, that's interesting, and you see it come through in audition as well, is that there's certain things across our cultures that, for instance, Americans might not find certain concepts that Japanese find horrifying or shocking, and vice versa. So when you watch a movie like this, or really any foreign horror movie, you can be shocked and be taken completely off your guard because in their culture maybe something that they're they're touching on concepts they're they're uh, looking into exploring are just not as taboo as they are here in american culture yeah and so that's another thing that kind of popped in my mind while watching this movie the movie that we're talking about like i mentioned earlier is takeshi miike's 1999 movie audition オーディション。息子に言われたんです。最近しょぼくれてるんで、最後に出ましたって。あさみ。やけ。本当にオーディションするのか。誰もお前の最高相手探すためだけにオーディションするわけじゃないよ。見せてあさみです。俺はもう。あの、見たのか。あの女の体に触ったのか。ハイドラマンビュース。ファイト。ファイトだけです。ファイトだけです。この人はいけません。ただなんか嘘だけど。お金だけは信じれるのよ。This movie came out at a time before the American and French torture porn 
trends. They kind of all came about for very separate reasons, and this movie seems to get lumped in with those a lot, not because it is directly part of that trend, but because it's kind of a proto-movie in that trend. This movie influenced a lot of the movies that would be kind of lumped in with that specific subgenre, which is a subgenre that I am not a fan of. Like, I'll just go ahead and lay it out there. Like, I'm not a huge fan of torture porn at all. Same. I mean, I don't include Audition in it, but I do see what you mean. But I think, like, the highlight for torture porn type of movies, to me, is, like, the first Saw movie. Yeah. But beyond that, it's not very deep. Like, I, I don't really care for it either. Yeah, there's just something about it that I am not interested in exploring personally. I mean, as much as I like watching horror movies, I don't like seeing people in pain. And there's definitely a difference between having heads and limbs cut off in sometimes a very fakey or comedic way or in a way that like is story relevant but just to kind of see it for the sake of that is not something that I necessarily enjoy at all. You know, the whole idea of a lot of the American torture porn stuff being directly kind of rooted in our post-9-11 experience with the war in the Middle East and Abu Ghraib and just all that stuff going on. No, I don't want to relive a whole lot of that because, you know, that was a very strange time for us growing up for people our age because we were still very young and impressionable and having to deal with all of that stuff kind of on a very frank, like, oh, this is what the world in the U.S. is really like, and da-da-da, you know? So I, it's just not a subgenre that I enjoy exploring, but this movie, I think, is probably going to be the one of the few that we explore that goes anywhere near that realm, simply because, again, this is not part of that subgenre, even though it gets lumped in with it a lot. Again, this is 99. Um, it's Japan, so it's it's a completely different context altogether. Yeah, I feel like that subgenre, especially in America, didn't really take off until like at least a couple years into the 2000s anyway. So. Well, yeah, because it's, it's specifically post 9-11. So it's, it's yeah. definitely like a reaction to the war in the Middle East and 9-11. So it's definitely kind of from that point on. So yeah, this movie was... Made by the same production company who made the original Ring movie, Ringu. And they were kind of looking for a new hit after that movie came out. And so they got the rights to the novel audition, which was written by Murakami. And they found a writer. They got Mike as the director, which... Takeshi Miike has made over a hundred fucking movies. Yeah, I remember I remember looking at his filmography and being like, holy shit, it never ends. Yeah, just since 91. That's like a few a year. He's a madman, and he's made everything from like kids movies to action movies to like serious dramas to this. So he has a very, very wide range of stuff all said and done. You know, I, I remember seeing Ichi the Killer when I was in high school, which was kind of his big breakout hit on an international scale, but I've definitely seen the Dead or Alive trilogy. I really like a lot of his later stuff. Like I love 13 Assassins. That movie is insane. If you want a long feudal samurai movie that's just an hour and a half long giant chunk of a bunch of dudes fighting in a village in the rain and mud, that movie's awesome. But he's done tons and tons of stuff since. He even did a live action JoJo's Bizarre Adventure adaptation more yep. recently, like back in 2017, which is crazy to me. Yep. 
so yeah, he's he's wild. His episode of the Masters of Horror series that aired on Showtime is notoriously the episode that did not air. It was considered to be so extreme that the network decided you know not to air it so it only came out later on home video and i've seen it um it was imprint it follows a lot of the themes that this movie deals with actually but it was definitely one that i was kind of like okay all right i've seen this and i'm good i don't have to watch this ever again (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was just a lot of bamboo splinters and fingernails and people hanging upside down from the ceiling in weird ways and just very sad story. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, this movie is a favorite of Tarantino's and Rob Zombie's. Like I said, it directly influenced a lot of the torture porn people. So, I mean, Eli Roth was like 100% influenced by this and has said so. If Tarantino and Rob Zombie fusion danced, I think of Eli Roth and the fact that all three of them love this movie just does not surprise me in the least yeah the Saska sisters were also heavily influenced by it their movie American Mary visually kind of pulls some things directly from this movie so anyway what I find interesting about this movie first of all it, it is very very much what I kind of like I'm, I'm gonna coin this phrase here on our podcast if it's not something that somebody else has already thought of but it's a disco ball of a movie I do not think it is a mirror where, you know, you see exactly what you want to see based on what you kind of come in with. And I don't necessarily think it's even just a prism where, you know, there's two or three things going on that you can kind of reflect. But this movie is multifaceted. There are lots of little pieces that you can kind of look at directly and kind of just see exactly what you want to see. Um, You can see yourself. You can see the things that you bring in with it and your opinions. But you can't also not see all the other things going on to the side from different angles with different lighting. So it's just very kaleidoscopic and kind of what it's doing and i've read lots and lots of opinions on what this movie is and what it's doing and the meaning behind it since doing a little bit of research for this movie just to kind of shore up some of my ideas a little firmer but everybody seems to have a different opinion on it which is why i think this movie is incredibly interesting you know if you have a movie and everybody kind of says yes it's about this and everybody agrees done you know and sometimes that's good sometimes it is what it is but when you have a movie like this where you have to think a little bit about what's going on and kind of wrestle with how you feel about it that's always going to make for a more interesting viewing experience ultimately and on that point too if you try and create a movie like that it is a tight rope to walk on because if you try and and do that for the sake of wanting a deeper meaning it could come off as just a terrible movie that's just a mess makes no sense is not well put together i do find that interesting that you you bring it up because i watched i watched audition twice because it's been a minute since we last recorded so i wanted to try and refresh myself and the first time i viewed it i felt one way about it and the second time i viewed it it was almost uh, yes it, it was the same movie but at the same time, it was almost like a completely different experience with just the feelings I had during the watch and just kind of what I took out of it. It is a movie that you could always go back to and rewatch even and continue to find things that you didn't see or didn't get other viewings previous. Yeah, and like I mentioned, everybody seems to have a different opinion about this movie, you know, on its themes. So some people see this as a feminist movie. Some people see this as a misogynist 
movie. Some people see this as an anti-Western movie. Some people see this as an anti-Eastern movie. Everybody's opinion is different and varied, and I don't think any of them are right, and I don't think any of them are wrong. I think this is definitely kind of a take-from-it-what-you-would kind of movie, to a degree. Uh, there is there is kind of one thing that I do stand firm on that we'll discuss more specifically, but overall, like, that's part of the reason why I picked this movie, because there is something inherently complicated and unsettling about it beyond just the surface-level stuff, and it deals with a couple of specific, very modern fears that we'll get into, so. A lot of the modern fears are universal, because oh, yeah. while while there are cultural differences that you pick up on in this movie, and certain little details and things that are said, just the fact that you're a foreigner, you're just not going to catch on, but for the most part, like, like, the thing I really enjoyed about this movie was that, and you had touched on it earlier with, with almost showing Tokyo as more like just New York City or any other city. And that's that's what I did appreciate because there are a lot of things that in the modern business world are just universal no matter what country you're in. It's hard to believe this movie came out in 1999 at some scenes because a lot of the fears this movie touches on are things that are very well big problems, especially in corporate world and, and business world, modern now that Americans suffer over work, going nowhere, capitalism in general. Speaking on that, this movie to me, my own personal experience with it is a little bit timeless because it's one of those movies that I feel like every single time I went to Blockbuster and I walked through or me and my friends walked through the horror section, I always saw this movie on the rack. Yeah. Every time I always would pick it up. The cover always fascinated me. I always wanted to know what it was about. I'd always look on the back and see that image of the woman with like some kind of string. Looks like she's spreading it apart. And I'm like, what is the hell is this movie about? Yeah, there's something about that image of Asami that is super intriguing to like a, a young person's mind, especially because you see this very gorgeous Japanese woman wearing a weird like butcher's yeah. apron <laughs> with giant black gloves on and some kind of weird instrument that you don't know what it is and there's something immediately intriguing about it because you're drawn in you know by like oh there's this pretty girl on the cover yeah but what's going on and the movie clearly like once you watch a movie it clearly spells out all of that very well so it is a great job of uh, whether it was the marketing or whoever that did the cover art for that movie even back in the late 90s yeah you're probably right i was probably a horny teenager drawn to that cover just because oh it's a beautiful woman on the cover but then i looked at it and i'm like what the fuck is this about i want to know more yeah and for whatever reason, I never did get around to, uh, me and my friends never did around, uh, get around to watching it. I mean, we even rented Ringu because we loved the ring so much, but we never got around to watching Audition. Um, I don't know why, but kind of like Texas Chainsaw, the third generation, it was just one of those movies that sticks out in my mind that I always remember seeing on the Blockbuster shelf every single time I would go to the Blockbuster near my house. I went into this movie with a lot of excitement because I, I felt like I was almost like I was finally unpacking a mystery that's been over a decade in the making so yeah so again this is the spoiler warning but also as well i want to touch on just some things to expect if if you're a casual horror movie goer i don't know if you want to start with this one um this movie doesn't have like 
really many or if any jump scares but it's a disturbing movie <laughs> um there is a jump scare in here there I is say. there is a maybe about two-thirds of the way through so just just fyi there is one really heavy one now that i'm thinking more about it there are a couple actually but the jump scares are very few and far between but they when they happen they are extremely effective but the movie in general is just very disturbing and not even just from a gore standpoint either just just from a dread from what happens in the movie the themes it touches on it was a movie that sat with me for a while i thought about it for a long time it got under my skin um almost like a psychological horror movie rather than a shocking ghost horror movie if you are not okay with I don't want to give away anything just yet since we're not going to spoilers, but if you are not okay with body horror and some torture horror, you don't want to you don't want to start with this one. But if you are a horror fan and you have not seen this movie yet, you just stop the podcast right now and go fucking watch it. I can see why this movie is on so many people's lists of all-time greatest horror movies. I thumbs up as as far as a movie goes, but yeah, if you're a casual horror goer or you you don't like horror but you're trying to get into it, I maybe go uh check out something else go go uh go watch night of the creeps that that episode just dropped off for us so uh yeah so the movie begins in a hospital where a young boy is bringing this like clay dinosaur diorama to his sick mother <laughs> um which that's like the most little boy thing ever to just be like you know what my mom would like to make her feel better dinosaurs so the boy's father is in the room with the mother and she dies right as the boy walks in. <laughs> First two minutes into the movie. Welcome. Yep. Welcome to the movie. It starts off just like basically every Disney movie. So we then immediately cut to seven years later. And the man whose name is Shigaharu Aoyama. And he's played by Ryo Ishibashi. Uh, which I have not seen him in a ton. Apparently he's in the remake of The Grudge. Which... Okay, that's the thought that I was trying to think of earlier. Let's circle back around. Notice, with all of the popular Japanese horror movies, and a lot of the K-horror movies as well, The Grudge, The Ring, The Eye, a lot of those that got remakes in the early 2000s, notice there is no remake of Audition. Yeah, I, I did think about that, yep. There has always been talk of, like, a remake of Audition just kind of, you know, lurking in the background, but it's just never happened. Anyway, Ishibashi was in the Grudge remake. He's been in a lot of Japanese TV. The only thing that I've really seen him in was American Yakuza with uh, Viggo Mortensen. Either way, uh, the man, he is now middle-aged, and he is out fishing with his son, the, the little boy that we saw who is now 17, um, and his son's name is Shigehiko, and he was played by Tetsu Sawaki. Tetsu Sawaki. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. <laughs> um, he only acted for about three years and kind of got out of the game, so I'm sure he's probably living a great life somewhere doing something else. So either way, they catch some fish, he gets a phone call, so, you know, they go back to the house. That, that fucking mobile phone just brought me back because it was oh, yeah. it was like you know 90s mobile phone like big fucking box in your hand yeah yeah giant like flip out piece yep 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 so while they're eating the fish that they caught that day shigehiko kind of gently starts you know nudging his dad a little bit about starting to kind of get out there and dating again we are introduced to their beagle gengu such a good name for that beagle too oh yeah gengu. totally I have no idea, like, what that name translates to, if anything, or if it means something. But yeah, what a great name for a beagle. Yep. One thing of note, during this dinner, they're discussing whether or not the fish they caught is male or female. And Aoyama says, quote, I don't know much about ovaries. 
<laughs> so yeah. I think that's telling of like the themes of this entire movie is uh, a guy who just doesn't understand women and doesn't really put any effort into doing so. During this scene, you kind of get a real sense of how lonely Aoyama is now. And um, we see him washing the dishes after they're done eating. A point, you know, which is kind of driven home by the editor at his job the next day, who's especially kind of ribbing him and giving him grief about, you know, still being single. The next day at work, his secretary gives him some kind of basic updates on an upcoming project as he's walking out the door for the day. And she seems very uneasy and kind of clearly wanting some attention or affection from Aoyama. Um, and he's just kind of being cold and indifferent toward her. And, you know, she tells him that she's getting married. And he gives her a very just kind of unenthusiastic reply as he steps into the elevator and she's kind of like, okay, bye. Yeah, it's interesting because he was remaining businesslike and the coldness and indifference didn't come from him just being malicious towards her or anything like that. No, he just remained in business mode, whereas she was kind of, I mean, fawning over him a little bit. And yeah, I, I don't know. Do you get that her mentioning that she's getting married was in a like attempt to make him jealous or be like, oh, I'm still technically available for now, but it's not going to last? Or, or what did you we'll, take from that? We'll, we'll get into that a little bit later. Just know that, like, what you mentioned for listeners, that's kind of the context of that scene, rather. He was cold, but it was very much like, yes, thank you, business co-worker kind of way. Yeah. So, Aoyama leaves work and meets his friend Yasuhisa Yoshikawa, who's a film producer. They meet at a bar to just kind of hang out and shoot the shit and discuss life and business. Uh, Yoshikawa is played by Jun Kunimura. And this dude is one of my favorites. He's one of these character actors that you've probably seen in all kinds of stuff. Um, the main thing that most American audiences have probably seen him in is Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. The scene where Oren Ishii, played by Lucy Liu, as she kind of announces her intentions to take over the Yakuza, he's kind of the one Yakuza boss who's like, uh, fuck no, we're not going to be led by some kind of Chinese American woman. And she jumps up on the table, runs down, and like in a flash, chop his fucking head off so that's a rad scene in that movie but he was also in black rain and hard-boiled uh which that one's a great like jump sideways with two guns while doves fly in the background (laughs) of the church in slow motion kind of movies um he was in takeshi's previous movie ichi the killer he was in the outrage which was directed by takeshi katano who was the star of Battle Royale and Sonatine, so that's one that, like, is on my list of things I want to watch. He's in Why Don't You Play in Hell, which is a super, super fun movie from a couple of years ago, where basically it's 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 a movie being made within a movie, and those are always kind of fun. He was in a remake of Unforgiven. Interesting. I didn't even know there was a remake of it. Like, a Japanese Western remake of the Clint Eastwood Western. I want to see it. <laughs> yes. And Ken Watanabe plays the Eastwood role. Fuck yeah. I am, I'm totally down. I yeah. am totally down. So I gotta I gotta dig that one up and watch it. Unforgiven's one of my favorite Westerns, and I would love to watch that. Like a Japanese remake of it? Fuck yes, I'm in. Yeah. 
And then he's also in The Wailing, uh, which is a recent one from like maybe a year or two ago. That movie we will definitely be doing on this podcast. And that movie is definitely one that fits what I've mentioned earlier of there's a lot of cultural stuff in there that we do not understand that we will have to kind of dig into to kind of get what's going on. Um, It is a movie about demonic possession. Oh, good. Great. Can't wait. (laughs) It's all of these different people in a Korean village who are being possessed and kind of this one bumbling police detective who's trying to figure it out and that movie walks such a razor edge of tone that is masterful where one minute you are laughing at this kind of dumpy police detective like three stoogesing the shit out of a crime scene and then the next scene is like some horrific demonic possession shit super fun so we will definitely be talking about that one later so anyway that sounds like it's gonna be a a chore for me to get through so okay (laughs) getting back to the movie oyama and yoshikawa are hanging out the bar and yoshikawa kind of makes some disparaging remarks about a group of women that are at the other end of the bar you know they're younger women they're kind of being loud and having fun they're clearly kind of out on the town for the night um and he specifically kind of calls them dumb and common, which is a very kind of odd classist thing, um, which is kind of very specific to Japanese culture in a very different way than it is here. And he specifically just kind of says, you know, like, where where are all the nice girls at? Which, that's immediately where it's like, okay, done. Like, that's a fucking <laughs> trigger right there for tons and tons of people. Like, anytime that you hear a guy talk about, like, nice girls, that just makes my skin crawl. It's such a fucking patronizing term. It, and it's just such, like, a nice guy TM kind of term that's just gross. Nice girls, meaning, a.k.a. girls who don't do anything that I find to be morally offensive or whatever that fit exactly what I want. Like, it's just a very gross possessive kind of idea yeah on the on the light end of that you have somebody who just like goes on the internet and complains about it on reddit on the dark side of that you have a serial killer who decides that they want to kill prostitutes yeah because they don't they don't see him as as clean or whatever i don't know why but to me this this scene stood out for me in a lot of ways but i think the main reason it does is i start seeing universal themes that no matter what country you're in no matter even like 10 years later a lot of these themes still hold up I could picture myself being at this bar. I could picture sitting next to somebody like him making these remarks. Even before that, they're talking about how like Japan is going to hell and the country is screwed. Yeah, they're talking about the economy and how jobs are shitty right now. They're just kind of talking about all that, but they seem to root it all back around to it's all the fault of the moral failings of our society, specifically these loose women, these, you know, immoral women that don't hold to traditional values. Like, it's very much that shitty viewpoint. And over a decade later, like, we're dealing with that problem on a daily basis again, especially over the internet. And then even that, just like kind of the whole idea of dread about the future of your country, blaming it on everybody else but yourself or blaming it on other groups except your own. Yeah, this scene just rang true for me of just as we are now adults, I'm in my 30s, I see this more and more as I'm getting older. And uh, the fact that this 1990 99 Japanese horror movie 
I related to the scene so hard, but not like related in a way that like, oh yeah, I agree with these characters. No, this is a fucking terrible conversation. But you having. see it, you see it, you experience it. It's one yeah. of those timeless kind of things. It doesn't matter yeah. like what time period you're in or what country you're in. You're always going to blame the bad shit going on on others. You know, you're always going to find some group to kind of specifically say it's their fault, whether you're correct or not, but usually it's always some group that has been specifically targeted by, you know, the powers that be as a scapegoat. Yeah. You know, and in this case, it's women. Yeah. So, Aoyama tells his friend that he's kind of thinking about getting remarried, um, and they kind of begin to discuss the specifics of, like, what kind of woman Aoyama's kind of interested in being with, right? So, he's looking for a woman who is mature and accomplished and talented, you know, basically everything that his wife was. His wife was like a piano player. He's clearly just expressing frustration and, like, longing for his wife, whom he misses. And Yoshikawa kind of recommends, hey, why don't we hold a mock casting audition for a movie that we're never gonna actually make and we'll just basically you know see which women audition for this part and we'll just you know kind of pick you a new wife from there the basis for so many reality tv shows well to the basis of like so many fucking rom-coms yep (laughs) i think we mentioned it a second ago but like this movie for the first maybe 45 minutes is like really tame you know it's very straightforward it's like a very basic kind of rom-commy movie it does feel like a rom-com i didn't even think about that yeah yeah. like it doesn't get intense until about halfway through where like things start to kind of creep in but this is the plot of so many fucking rom-com movies where the guy worms his way into a girl's life through some kind of fucking lie or subterfuge like says he's working a job that he's not actually working or like insinuates himself in some way to get in with a girl like that is such the fucking plot of so many rom-coms that it's just like based entirely on a fucking lie so the other thing too i mean clearly this is not the first time that yoshikawa's pulled this move like you can tell the way that he's kind of playing it out and the way he's saying it and the look on his face like you can tell he's kind of trying to play it off as oh i just thought about this good idea but you can tell he's definitely done this before yeah yoshikawa is definitely the producer who absolutely takes advantage of the power he has yeah kind of close to middle age but still living the swinger bachelor lifestyle and all about getting hella laid yeah which shows that like all the stuff that's going on right now with you know the me too movement and everything none of that's new none of that shit's new it's been going on since always another thought that popped in my mind with this idea and i wanted to ask you this has totally happened in hollywood at some point or another right and probably might still be happening in hollywood like all the time always has Probably, unfortunately, always will be. It's just kind of one of those... I have binders of women just kind of like, ugh, goddammit. Like, it's not just Hollywood either. Like, it's it's so many industries and professions where you have access to people. I forgot about the binders of women comment. <laughs> yeah, so, anyway... You know, Yoshikawa kind of says that the whole process will be above board because they'll essentially take like a real script that's laying around and set up an audition for a real movie with Aoyama kind of finding a woman in the process. And eventually the whole deal would just be that they'll just be like, oh yeah, well, whatever. The movie kind of folded and it fell apart and nothing will come of it. They even go so far as to put an ad out on the radio. We see a young girl listening to it in her home, in her apartment, and just kind of watching the 
rain out the window. Again, like, this is some dentist system shit. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Yoshikawa's definitely, like, a bit of a sociopath. You know, he even goes so far as to say that, you know, Aoyama can't choose the actual lead of the movie because at the end of the day, you know, she's a, kind of a diva, so she's not going to want to marry somebody like him. So he should find a girl who's kind of an unhappy person because, you know, all good actresses are inherently unhappy but you want to find the one who's willing to essentially settle for not getting the lead and would be fine marrying you so like what a again like just kind of a fucked up perspective on all of that Ayama, to touch on his character a little bit too he is very much the personification of the road to hell is paved in good intentions because while he is very reserved about this like he's all about like no this has to be like we need to make sure that we do this right we're respectful blah 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 He's still he's still totally complicit. Yeah, he's still going along with the plan, and the plan itself, no matter how respectful, no matter how you set it up, it's still a very manipulative plan that's kind of fucked up. Yeah. You know, he's he's complicit. Eliyama returns home. He's got, like, a giant chunk of resumes and headshots and stuff, so you see him in his office kind of thumbing through all of it and looking at all these different women who are going to be auditioning, during which he, like, shamefully turns the picture of his wife around on the desk so like right there okay if you feel that weird about what you're doing done like you know that you're not doing something that's kosher yeah so anyway yoshikawa yoshikawa tells him to you know read through all the resumes carefully and just pick 30 girls as he's kind of thumbing through all of them he finds the resume for a girl named asami yamazaki and is immediately smitten so asami is played by ihi shina and she was a model for most of her career, and she kind of stepped into acting a little bit later. I have not seen a whole lot that she's been in, except for Tokyo Gore Police and Hell Driver. We we watched Tokyo Gore Police in college yes. together. That movie is batshit. <laughs> yeah, Tokyo Gore Police was one that uh, we watched with our friend Nowaki, who will be on this podcast in the near future. So yeah, I haven't seen her in a whole lot, but uh, she's fantastic in this. And just kind of the whiplash of emotions that she has to kind of go through over the course of this movie is pretty stunning. According to her resume, Asami trained in ballet for 12 years and eventually had an injury that kept her from any kind of further training. And the ad that was on the radio, the Tomorrow's Heroine ad, which was kind of funny to hear like them talking about Julia Roberts in this Japanese ad. Yeah, yeah. She heard the ad on the radio, which inspired her to like try her hand at acting. Either way, eventually Shigehiko, his son, returns home and uh, he's got a girl with him named Suzu and they kind of met earlier in the day and he introduces her to Aoyama who gives him kind of a like approving dad nod hell yeah son yeah yeah and uh good luck to this boy but man he's still like obsessed with some dinosaurs which don't get me wrong I'm 31 fucking love some dinosaurs but like running to go hang out look at dinosaur books you know what I mean yeah their their date immediately like is like let's go to my room and study dinosaurs yeah so that was <laughs> That was kind of funny. Anyway, we cut to the audition the next day, and Ayama still kind of feels uneasy about the whole idea, which, you know, he should. So they begin to interview women, and Yoshikawa's kind of asking lots of very direct and personal questions. 
this whole scene is done in a very comedic way. It's it's oh, just kind of moving yeah. from like woman to woman to woman to woman coming in. It's just like a montage. Yeah, um, but you see them checking people's names off and you know kind of rolling their eyes at some of the responses that they're getting. But I mean, they they interview such a wide range of women. You know, there's a cheerleader, there's a flamenco dancer, there's models. Well, one of the women just like immediately goes topless like as soon as yeah. she walks in. This is very much like the rom com scene of the movie. Yeah, and and this honestly is like one of the grossest contextual scenes yeah it but really it's is by far the funniest scene in the movie honestly it really is i especially like the girl who like comes back in a second time and they're like wait weren't you just in here and she just kind of stares at him and says yeah but i have more to say <laughs> <laughs> oyama's you know kind of there but his mind is clearly like already locked on to asami he's kind of just waiting and waiting and waiting for them to get to her name on the list and he even goes so far to like step out of the audition to go into the like room where they're all hanging out waiting just to kind of see if he can scope out who he thinks Asami might be. Um, and he does kind of see her like way off on the other end sitting completely by herself. So they finally get to Asami and during her audition we find out that she kind of stays professionally connected with a record label exec and has worked part-time at a bar for the last couple of years. But all of her background's just kind of sketchy, right? Yeah, it's focused enough that, like, in an initial interview, you could probably get through, but if, if anyone, like, dug any further or went to a second interview, it would start raising questions. But in this situation, they're vague, yet, again, focused enough that it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, so much to uh, Yoshikawa's surprise, Aoyama takes the lead on this interview, and he's clearly infatuated with her more than he is with the other women. Is this like the only one where we actually see him asking questions yeah. throughout yeah. the entire montage? Yeah. Um, so he's definitely like, okay, this is the girl that he's interested in, so he's jumping in now. So after the audition's over, Yoshikawa's kind of already uneasy about Asami, but he's just not 100% sure why. Like I mentioned, you know, everybody else kind of had credentials that checked out completely, but hers were kind of vague-ish. So he's just kind of uneasy about her already and senses that Aoyama's like already like done he's made his mind up so later that night Aoyama like just immediately picks the phone and goes ahead and calls Asami and asks her out so that's that Right after calling Asami, Yoshikawa calls because he's kind of dug a little bit further into her background and is now like even more uneasy about it because he wasn't able to reach any of the references on her resume. So like the music producer that she claimed to work for, the person who owned the bar, they're just not around. The record exec has even been missing for the last 18 months straight up. Aoyama's kind of like, okay, cool, like, thanks for the update, but I think it's probably going to be fine. So he takes her out anyway. She kind of, you know, over the course of, like, the evening where they're hanging out and they're eating and they're talking, she kind of takes some of her earlier lies as, like, innocent confusion and maybe some white lies, you know, because he does just ask her, like, oh, yeah, well, we tried to reach out to, you know, so-and-so to find out, you know, your work background. She just kind of says, oh, well... I didn't really, like, work for that, you know, music executive or whatever. Like, it was kind of a different situation and blah, blah, blah. And 
you know, okay, but, you know, I didn't mean bad by it. And he's kind of like, yeah, sure, okay, I believe you. So she just kind of rolls it off a little bit. She totally knows, like, she's got him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so obvious. Yeah. So it cuts to a scene where Yoshikawa's on the rooftop of a building, and he's kind of on, like, a little um, knitted-in golf course. And he and Aoyama are just kind of shooting the shit some more. And Yoshikawa just tells him, like, look, I'm super uneasy about her. She seems too perfect. Perfect. No one seems to know who she is. Um, we can't find out any concrete anything about her past. So just be aware. So Aoyama goes about his day-to-day, and then we kind of see Asami in her apartment, uh, which is the apartment that we saw a little bit earlier where she was just kind of staring out the window at the rain. And the apartment is empty for the most part. I mean, it's pretty much just a phone on the ground and a big giant canvas sack kind of over in the corner, and she is just sitting right next to the phone. And the way she's sitting is borderline unnatural. Yeah. She looks like a Japanese ring girl, the way she's sitting, because, like, she's hunched over. You can kind of barely see her face. Her hair is, like, drooped over her face, yeah. This is the first real inkling and reminder that, oh, wait, you're still technically watching a horror movie. This is the where the th- the weirdness and the horror slowly starts to bleed into the movie. Because up at this point, like Mansfield was saying, very much a rom-com, maybe just a little weird undertones here and there, like her sketchy past. But otherwise, it's been just like, let's get this single dad a, a date. And that's that. But <laughs> this is where you're like, oh, okay, they, yeah, this... And just the shot of her apartment. Her apartment's so creepy with how bare it is, too. Yeah. And man, this this scene is, is in particular very haunting. And you get the sense that she's been sitting by that phone for hours, if not, like, a couple of days. Because we see uh, Aoyama kind of go about his day just dot, 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 you know, and it just kind of cuts to her. So you're the impression that you get is that she is just sitting there by the phone waiting for it to ring. Yeah. And at one point there's a camera shot when it gets closer to like her unnatural pose when she's hunched over, like you can see like the back parts of her spine, like coming out at the base of her neck on her back. There's no way it's a comfortable position. Yeah. Even just to get in that position for a couple minutes, it's not comfortable. Yeah. She looks like very stoic and like she's been there for hours, days. Yeah. We kind of see Aoyama loafing around his house a little bit, just kind of doing nothing. Um, And his housekeeper, Ri, she's kind of going on and on about how men can work too hard and they can exhaust themselves if they don't have a wife to take care of the house things for them, dot, dot, dot. It's kind of a little peek into what some of the themes are this movie's dealing with, which, you know, this is not unique to Japanese culture. It's just specific to Japanese culture in the context of this movie. But the entire patriarchal idea of women need to serve their men and take care of the household and blah 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 that's not anything new to anywhere in the fucking world unfortunately but it's just very much a part of japanese culture specifically japanese culture used to be very kind of equal for a long time in terms of like women being able to kind of own businesses and be you know financially productive for themselves but eventually the culture kind of shifted to where 
women specifically needed to take care of the house and women needed to contribute to the nation by having children. So things kind of took a pretty heavy shift as time went on. So again, this is kind of just a peek into what that looks like with the housekeeper who is just 100% on the whole idea of, oh, you work too hard and it's got to be exhausting being, you know, a professional businessman and, you know, you just need somebody to take care of the house and do all this stuff for you. It was as if you took a comedian's women, am I right, fellas? Yeah. And turned it into a scene. Basically. Um, so we have a second scene with Aoyama's secretary where she steps into his office and she just kind of tells him like, okay, I'm just letting you know I'm leaving for the day. Which is just kind of like, okay, sure. But she's clearly wanting him to engage with her. And he just, again, kind of indifferently disregards her in that kind of professional business way. You know, and then he just kind of blows her off. And she leaves again. And then we see him pick the phone and call Asami's apartment where... Once again, we see her just creepily sitting, waiting by the phone. And again, her posture is like super weird and fucked up in that scene again. Yeah, and before you, you, we go further into her apartment again, something I wanted to touch on with the secretary. If this scene wasn't taking place in the context of the rest of this movie and everything you know up to this point, it would actually be a pretty good way of showing if you're a boss or in that kind of position of how to handle something like that, of just being like polite business professional but also you know you have to have that kind of that indifference if you're put in that kind of situation yeah it seems like a weird scene that you would see out of like an hr training video <laughs> yeah it really does but the fact that it takes place smack dab in the middle of this movie is very fascinating and yeah. just makes you think completely different things about it i really don't think that those scenes because I mean, these secretary scenes, technically, you could probably cut them out of the movie if you wanted, but I think they're there for a specific reason, just as a reminder of like, again, good intentions pave the way to hell. He's not a creep, but he's doing a very, very creepy thing in what he did with the uh, holding the auditions and seeing Asami. So we'll get into it a little bit later specifically, but I think the entire point of the secretary kind of subplot is that subplot specifically points to the fact that he is 100% complicit in what he's doing, in my opinion. He says, oh, I just want, like, a regular girl. But you're literally holding an audition. Yeah. Like, picking and choosing and shopping for a woman. And what you think you want in a woman. And the fact that, like, his secretary clearly has feelings for him, as we've seen in these just two scenes. And she is trying her best to get his attention, you know, shows that he's not quite open to that idea you know i do i have read like a lot of reviews and comments on this movie talking about how ayama is kind of this like victim of circumstance and he should be absolved a little bit because he wasn't the real villain in this story and everything else but the secretary subplot to me like perfectly indicates that no he 100 is only interested in like finding a woman that is tailored specifically to his needs and not willing to like accept anything other than that essentially yeah Regardless of what he does and doesn't deserve, really, I mean, he's still at fault. He may even be clueless on to, like, how fucked up what he's doing is, but he's yeah. still doing it, and he should still kind of know better, but... Yeah. I, I was thinking throughout the entire movie, and it's sort of a cliche thing to think, but at the same time, I was thinking, like, man, bro, what would your wife be thinking if she knew you were doing something like this? She would probably be fucking disappointed in him if she's as great as her past and conversation I made her out to be. It goes back to the scene earlier when he was looking through all the rest resumes in his like home office and he literally has to like turn the picture of his wife around
around. Like, yeah. just literally seeing a fucking picture of his wife is enough to make him, like, feel guilty, which he should take as a clue that what he's doing is not kosher, you know? So, yeah. anyway, so this scene here, um, he calls her from his office again, and again, we see her kind of creepily sitting next to the phone. He essentially just says, like, hey, so, you know, let's let's go out again. You know, I'd like to see you again. Okay, cool. Meet at this place this time. All right, awesome. And we see this, like, super creepy fucking smile, like, slowly spread yeah. across her face. Just giant ear-to-ear grin. Almost demonic-like. Yeah. <laughs> and as she's just, like, sitting on the floor, sitting next to the phone, the giant fucking canvas bag in the corner throws its across the room and rolls around grunting. Yeah, I'll admit I did jump at the scene. <laughs> yeah, so this is definitely the first oh fuck moment in this movie. Like, yeah. what the fuck did I just watch? And it's so quick and it's so sudden and it catches you off guard because again that canvas duffel bag thing just like blends into the background of the scene for the most part but as it's like completely quiet once she hangs up the phone and it heaves itself across the room and just makes the most like weird like pig grunt noise um it's just like wait what the fuck did i just say and to make it even more unsettling when that happens she doesn't move a fucking muscle she just stays in that weird sitting position just creepily smiling yeah and, and like I said, you know, when she picked up the phone, she's just all of a sudden normal again. Just like, oh, yeah, I didn't think you were going to call me. Thanks. So, yeah. So they go on a date and we kind of find out a little bit more about Asami during the course of their conversations. You know, you find out just some of the emotional struggles that she's had over time and the self-doubt and self-worth issues that she's struggled with. So Ayama returns home and kind of tells his son Shigehiko that he intends to marry Asami. So just that quick, done. I'm gonna I'm gonna marry her. I made my mind up. So Aoyama takes Asami to a kind of nice seaside hotel, and that's kind of where he intends to propose. They're kind of awkwardly making small talk in their hotel room, and as they're doing so, Asami kind of very silently and robotically strips naked, but like still keeping herself like completely covered from him. She's still keeping all the important bits from being exposed, but just gets completely naked, climbs in bed, and pulls the covers just all the way up to her neck and just kind of lays there. She starts telling him about these burn scars that she has on her thighs, and she's super self-conscious about them, and you kind of find out that, like, that's the thing that kept her from dancing. And on one hand, it's kind of one of those things where you're like, wait, just some burn scars on her thigh don't, like, physically keep you from dancing. But when you kind of think about how ballet culture is all said and done, and how it's so geared around, like, physical perfection, yeah, um, especially probably in Japanese culture, too, but it, it's kind of a psychological thing. She is now this kind of damaged thing where beforehand she was this pure spirit of dancing and everything else so it's just kind of one of those it's more of a psychological scar than it really is a physical scar but it was enough to keep her from dancing and it's the one thing that she's kind of stuck on that she wants him to like she's laying herself bare to him and exposing those scars on her thighs because that's kind of in her mind, the thing that's either going to, like, completely turn him off 
or the thing that's going to, like, be okay, and they can move on going forward. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier, like, her stripping and how it was very robotic, and you're absolutely right with that description. But touching on that again, even with, like, all these revelations, and they are very tragic revelations, I still felt like she's done this before. She's done this a couple times before. Yes. He's almost, like, the one auditioning for her now at this point in some ways. Yes. Yeah, there are definitely times where... When you kind of break down what's happening, those power dynamics are very subtly shifting, and you don't necessarily realize it in the moment, but over time you start more and more to kind of see that she is definitely taking the upper hand. I mean, she has essentially taken the upper hand with him from the time that she put her resume in the pile, because since then he has been, like, wrapped around her fucking finger. And the thing, too, with, like, this scene in particular, while she physically might be looking like throughout the scene that she's being the submissive one physically, you can just tell, like, she is just manipulating manipulating him like a goddamn puppet yeah before making love asami demands like demands that aoyama pledge his love to her and no one else that's just what she wants is just for him to 100 say like yes i will love you and that's it you know we don't necessarily feel like this is untrue coming from aoyama like you do have a feeling that he would be kind of loyal and devoted to her you know, if they move forward with their relationship, you know, it's not like Yoshikawa where you could definitely see him just saying that to like get in her pants and then kind of move on when he's done with her. Yeah. So, you know, he does kind of say like, yeah, damn, I'll, I'll love you, no one else, and we'll go forward. This is where I can see uh, some people capitalizing on the tragedy of the movie, especially Ayama's character, because he has good intentions. Again, I keep bringing up good intentions, but that's, he, he's just in over his head and he's making bad decisions decisions but yeah deep down in his heart he would like you were saying he would be totally devoted to her he would be a loving husband like he actually would make a great guy it's just the circumstances that led up to it are really fucked yeah so they make love and in the early hours of the morning Aoyama is suddenly thrown awake because he gets a phone call from the hotel clerk who notifies him that Asami just suddenly left in the middle of the night so this is where the movie officially kind of starts to take a heavy turn. Oh, yeah. You know, we, we just had, like, the one weird scene in her apartment a minute ago. But this is where, like, things start to get really surreal. And like I mentioned, you know, tonally, the whole first half of this movie feels like a rom-com. The editing, the way things are shot and lit, the acting, like, it all feels like you're watching kind of a modern American rom-com. But this is where, like, things start to get very surreal. The lighting suddenly becomes heightened and Duffel bag more. included. Yeah. Very, very rom-com. And actually, too, it, it's interesting that you say that this is where it takes a turn because those scenes that were taking place in the hotel, like, leading up to them having sex, were very dreamlike. Yeah. They were, like, the first really dreamlike scenes in the movie. And then, yeah, you're right. Like, everything just takes a turn after that. Yeah, and stylistically as well, it starts to become more like a horror movie there are more canted angles in the cinematography and there's more neon lighting everywhere the acting becomes a little more heightened and just the situations become more surreal so this is where like it really takes a shift so the next day after asami just kind of disappears in the night ayama tells yoshikawa about her disappearance 
and they don't have an address for her. You know, he's just been kind of calling the phone number that was in her resume, um, but they don't actually have an address for her. You'd think that'd be pretty fucking important to know that, yeah, really. that address. She's no longer answering the phone, and the resume that they had is just dead end, so what the fuck? So Ayama kind of feels foolish, and he gets angry at Yoshikawa specifically for not being more, like, sympathetic and helpful in the situation, but Yoshikawa kind of tells him, like, I mean, told you so, bro. Yeah, what'd you expect? Yeah, so... Aoyama decides to visit the dance studio where Asami claimed to have trained. But when he gets there, it's in kind of a weird, sketchy part of town. It's all boarded up, and it's seemingly empty. And just as he's about to walk away, he hears piano music coming from inside the building. So he breaks through the boarded up entrance, and in a giant, open, empty dance room, he sees a man in a wheelchair, all the way in the corner, playing a piano in this empty room. And, like, no lights. There's just kind of a little tiny furnace thing that he has kind of at the ground to keep him warm. The sun's, like, peeking through as it's going down for the day. Yeah. And it's funny. Talk about horror tropes. Here is the main character, a mild-mannered Japanese businessman. You can assume for the last several years has just lived an unassuming life. Here he is breaking into a fucking abandoned building to chase down some piano music because he's trying to find the woman that he's now obsessed with or in love with, whatever you want to call it. That is a horror movie trope of like just characters just making decisions that are kind of out of left field. Yeah. So the man in the wheelchair is definitely like demented. He is kind of full crazy. He's wearing sunglasses and he's, you know, in his robe, in his wheelchair, and he's definitely kind of off, right? And this kind of triggers the first flashback scene where we see Asami as a child, and this is where, again, she was taking ballet. And he is kind of the, like, caretaker figure that she was sent to live with after her parents kind of abandoned her for all intents and purposes. But he's also the one who burned her. And that little furnace that's kind of by his feet has these... I'm not sure what they were. It's like they're it's like they're incense sticks, but they seem to be made out of metal. I thought they were incense sticks myself. Yeah, I, th- I think they might just be incense sticks. But anyway, we see a scene where Asami as a child is sitting on the ground with her legs kind of spread out. And we see this sadistic, awful looking guy just crawling on the ground, crawling toward her with one of these lit incense sticks and he asks her just kind of like a bunch of cryptic creepy questions and then burns her on the inner thigh with that which is where she got the scar from yeah so flipping back to present day the guy asks oyama like a bunch of kind of cryptic creepy fucking questions and stands up from his wheelchair and we see that he has prosthetic legs like he has wooden carved feet Aoyama, like, says, fuck this, and, like, dips the hell out. Yeah. (laughs) Going back to those scenes where she's a child, there's so many molestation vibes going on with the scene. None of it's explicit, but you definitely get the vibe that that's what's going on. Yeah, like, the setup of asking her to spread her legs on the ground, and he's crawling up to her private area, and then burning her inner thigh. Like, this is a very intense scene, one of the first of a few that are about to come up. 
talk about some fears at this. I mean, we don't even need to dig into the fears. I mean, it's yeah, self-explanatory. But yeah, I mean, if this if this whole podcast is about specifically kind of breaking down like why we think these movies are scary and like what kind of real world fe- fears that they're playing on, I mean, this is self-explanatory, a hundred percent. You know, yeah. we don't really even have to dig into this. This was one of the tougher scenes for me to get through. I will admit. Yeah, I I definitely have a hard time with like violence against children. Realistic actual malicious violence against children i guess let me let me define that because honestly like i love watching those youtube compilations of kids just bonking their heads and getting like you know smacked by like their dogs running across the yard and stuff like that but anything that's like actually kids getting hurt has always bothered me so yeah no i i would agree with you 100 percent. especially when there's like creepy sexual undertones to it that just makes it a thousand times worse yeah so Eliyama now kind of says, all right, let me investigate the next place. So he remembers the name of the bar where she claimed to work because it was kind of an odd name. It was like Stonefish. And he gets there and the bar is kind of in a weird basement of a bigger apartment building, but it's all boarded up as well. And there's police tape over it. And as he's there, all of a sudden this kind of passerby, just a random guy who was out getting groceries, who lives in the apartment building passes by and just kind of says, Hey, what are you doing? You know, and tells Aoyama that the bar has been empty for over a year and that the owner of the bar was murdered. Yay. (laughs) And not just murdered, but completely dismembered. Yeah. They've, they found the owner of the bar chopped up and the weird thing is that the police found three extra fingers an extra ear and an extra tongue when they recovered the body so dot 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 Aoyama like immediately kind of freaks out and has these weird hallucinations of like the body pieces like laying around the floor and the tongue is still twitching yeah these hallucinations just kind of come out of nowhere and it's like fucking nightmare on Elm Street yeah fingers kind of all over the place and yeah the fucking tongue on the ground just he asked the guy that lives in the building the passerby guy just about Asami like do you remember her do you remember seeing a girl and he just says like no I have no idea what you're talking about this might be a minor jump scare for some people too the one he has those hallucinations yeah it's just kind of one of those loud noise shocking image kind of jump scares yeah Uh, in a movie that has very very good performances i think honestly this is like the most ridiculous moment it really did feel like it was original nightmare on elm street to me well ishibashi's performance is just so like over the top <gasps> just a ghost basic was like a tongue um it's just so like over the top in that like one brief moment meanwhile at ayama's house uh we see the housekeeper re leave for the day through pov vision we see someone enter the house and they are like frantically searching and running around kind of rifling through everything and looking at everything in the house and once the pov gets up to the office they see a photo of Aoyama's late wife the one that he turned around earlier and the pov definitely like becomes just enraged and the camera becomes even more frantic dashing around um and eventually centers in on this liquor decanter it's got like whiskey or bourbon or something in it that we've seen Aoyama drink out of 
kind of throughout the movie. During this point of view scene, doesn't the sound also just kind of drown out and become more of like a droning sort of frantic noise that's happening? Like you don't hear any of the shuffling. You don't hear any of like moving the papers and turning around the camera or grabbing a liquor decanter. Like it's all just, it's as if somebody's seeing red. You don't hear anything. You just go red and like you're just. It's the noise of the blood like rushing in your ears. Like that's exactly what that like. It's that droning just like kind of noise so as the scene fades to night we hear a voice message from shigehiko letting aoyama know that he's at his girlfriend's house looks like shit turned around shigehiko yeah (laughs) so aoyama comes home pours a drink and pretty quickly realizes that he's been drugged like it kind of hits all of a sudden and he's fading and he 100% realizes what's going on but before he can do anything about it he just like hits the ground as he's laying on the floor we get kind of a flashback we can assume that it's like him remembering just some other details from all of these dates that we saw him on earlier with asami it's kind of one of those unreliable narrator moments where through the editing of the movie you know we kind of saw only what we were shown in those earlier dates and so now he's remembering all these other little moments from those dates that were left out so all the scenes where asami is like really revealing to him the abuse that she experienced as a child we can assume that because he's just so infatuated with her, he kind of just blocks a lot of that out and just chooses to shrug it off and ignore it because he just kind of wants her to be what he wants her to be. Yeah. And he kind of is choosing to ignore a lot of what she's revealing to him and laying bare for him. And he, while he's hallucinating and kind of remembering all this, um, he even hallucinates his late wife, Ryoko, at the date in the restaurant with them and he like introduces her to asami and says you know oh yeah this is my you know she's gonna be my new wife and his late wife ryoko is like immediately terrified of asami and like turned off and just repulsed by her talk about some fucking nightmare situations yeah really um hey dead wife here is my new improved wife jesus and dead wife freaks out like yeah His visions then kind of change into a scene where Asami is forcefully pulling his pants down to give him a blowjob. And during this, all of a sudden, Asami changes into his secretary. Yeah. And while it's the secretary, she reveals that she and Oyama had a brief sexual relationship it totally explains like why she's been acting the way she has around Oyama and like why she's been trying to get his attention because they had like a brief fling but he just kind of wrote it off and ignored every bit of attention that she's been trying to get out of him yeah all that setup and all those things i was saying praising the way he was acting earlier i was doing that on purpose because of this fucking turn right here because yeah yeah that's a shitty thing to do like he the way he was acting towards her in reality, it was probably just cause he was disgusted by the fact that they had that relationship and he didn't want to bring it up. Um, and she clearly was still distraught over it, but instead of trying to handle it maturely and discussing it, nah, I'm just going to be cold and indifferent towards you. Yeah. And, and it goes back to what I've been saying this whole time that like a lot of viewers give him a pass because he's not, he's not explicitly malicious, but at the same time, 
this is one of the clear examples of you don't want a partner. You don't want like an actual companion and wife. You want this kind of customized, commoditized, personalized, like specific idea of a woman in your life. But like you don't want to actually put the emotional effort into like actually having a relationship you know so he basically sleeps with his secretary like looking for something there but when he realizes like oh i actually have to put effort into like making a relationship out of this he just kind of locks it off and just goes right back to like professional business relationship and that's that when yeah you know she clearly has been trying to get his attention and in this like hallucination scene, like she tells him that she's sad that it didn't develop into something more real between the two of them. Just as quickly as it turned from Asami into the secretary, now the secretary turns into Higihiko's girlfriend, Misuzu. And this is where it gets even more transgressive and just like, hey. Yeah, so this was a pretty shocking because like when she turns into Misuzu, like he breaks away and like kind of backs off in shock and disgust. But if we can infer that he, in fact, did have a brief fling with a secretary, what the fuck does that mean with her then transforming into Mizuzi? I don't think it's trying to connotate anything like that. In some of the earlier scenes with Misuzu, she kind of comes off as a little more of the traditional demure, subservient to the man Japanese woman. Yeah. You know, Higihiko and Misuzu are at home and they eat dinner. And when Aoyama gets home late, they're just like, oh, whoops, you know, we, we ate your dinner, sorry. And she says like, oh my god, you know, I I didn't know it was your dinner. Like, let me go cook you something. And he's just like, no, 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 don't worry about it. But she's like bending over backwards trying to like make, make up for that. And she kind of fits the mold of like what Aoyama kind of wants. Yeah. And that's why you kind of see those bits where like he definitely just kind of gives his son a thumbs up and a wink, you know, every time that he's like, yeah, good pick, son. Yeah. So I think it's more yeah. of just that. I think it's just more, she is another reflection of the type of woman that is in his life. And she kind of exhibits more of the behaviors and traits that he's seeking all said and done. But because it's his son's girlfriend, it's completely, like, transgressive and weird. And that's the point where he, like, immediately breaks away yeah. in, like, shock and disgust and, like, backs the fuck up and, like, pushes her away. Yeah, I, I, I sort of have that same thought process as the way I, I read it in that scene. But I would be a liar if there wasn't a part of me that didn't think, like, is he also a little bit ashamed of himself or maybe, like, being attracted to an underage girl? I don't know if I'm just reading way too into it trying to be dark or not. Well, I think it's, it's definitely reflective of, like this is what could be the situation if you were even more like openly sleazy about what you're doing you know yeah, I, yeah. it's it's definitely just kind of like an even further darker version of the situation as it is now yeah so anyway as he's trying to run away he's like backing up in a hurry and he trips over the giant canvas sack like, he kind of immediately feels like there's something weird about it, and he gets up, and he's kind of immediately curious, and the sack then suddenly throws itself backwards, and the sack kind of opens up, like, the actual drawstring part of it, like, opens and separates, you see these hands push through, and this dirty, unkempt, 
just gross hobo looking naked guy crawls out of the canvas sack and we see that he is missing both of his feet his tongue he only has one ear and three fingers on one hand have been fucking cut off just like the crime scene yeah like all the extra parts of the crime scene so we see this just like fucking bring out the gimp Gollum looking motherfucker like crawl out of this canvas sack that's been like throwing itself around on the ground at her apartment. And Aoyama is like fucking terrified yeah. and disgusting by what the fuck he's looking at right now. This is by far the scariest part of the movie to me, at least in terms of jump scares. This is by far the most like abject part of the movie as well, too, just as far as like pure shock value. Yeah. And like. Oh, what am I looking at? This to me was uh, the biggest jump scare. Just yeah. I'll leave it at that. And then this, the immediate scene follow. I'll let you continue because the immediate scene follow it was the scene it that gets worse. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so the camera is trained on Aoyama just staring in disgust at like this awful looking dude on the ground, and we hear like these just sickly like wet noises behind him. And the camera then kind of switches to a different angle where we see standing directly behind Aoyama, like in a little kitchen area, is Asami. And she's bent over a sink where we can't like really see her face and like what's going on. Like she's leaning over into the sink. And we just hear these like wet, sloppy, like noises. And as she turns around, she has in her hands a fucking dog food bowl that is just dripping. And she like wipes the edges of her mouth. And you realize she's like vomiting into this dog food bowl. And she walks over to the weird, gross, creepy guy, sits the dog food bowl full of vomit on the floor in front of this bag man, and he just, like, gets fucking excited as hell and kind of, like, shambles over and just starts lapping it up. Just, like, full, like, face in it like a dog. He acts like Neville when you put a food bowl down for Neville. Uh, he acts like he acts like PJ, actually. She's the piggy of our two dogs. But yeah, he just starts, like, face full in. Some behind-the-scenes bit here that's maybe a little bit TMI, but dear lord. Apparently the vomit was real. Oh my god, really? I Jesus. did not find clarification on whether or not the vomit that the guy was eating was real, but the vomit that you see her holding in the bowl is real. She was definitely, like, playing this from a, you know, method acting kind of thing, and she actually puked in the bowl Oh my god. Um, while she was over the sink. So that's really, like, her vomit, but I don't know about, like, what the guy actually, like, put his face in. I doubt it. I fucking hope not. <laughs> yeah, I hope not, too. Funny enough, the bag man is one of the producers of this movie. Um... <laughs> The, the bag man, too, like, when, when she finally turns around with the bowl, he, like, raises his, like, hand up and kind of, like, beckons her over. But seeing his fucking mutilated hand with his, like, one gross finger just, like, doing the, like, come hither kind of motion is so fucking gross like this is kind of the like to me that's this is like the height of the like body horror just abject nastiness of this movie yeah the first time i saw the scene i gagged like yeah. just straight up gagged through like i think i gagged twice uh once when she was walking over with the bowl full of vomit and you see it for the first time and the second time when he laps starts lapping it up uh when i watched this movie again i didn't gag but i definitely got 
kind of that queasy stomach feeling. And then now you narrating through that scene, I started getting that queasy stomach feeling again because I picture the scene happening in my head. This is the most fucked up scene in the entire movie to me. Oh God, it's so disgusting, but it's effective. I mean, I I can't deny it. It's real fucking effective. You can't say you have seen anything like this ever in any other movie for sure. No. So we're to assume that the bag man is Shimada, the record executive that was mentioned earlier that has been like disappeared for the last 18 months. So that means she took him and did all that, and then she killed the guy who owned the bar and just dismembered him and left well, him. M- more on the bar owner in a second. Right. So anyway, yeah, like I mentioned, the, the bag man is played by Ren Asugi, and he was the producer of the movie, which, oddly enough, he died, like, almost exactly a year ago. Like, I wrote these notes just a couple of weeks ago, and it was, like, almost to the day that he died. So he he's just recently passed. So anyway, during these hallucinations, Asami keeps changing into all these different women and in Aoyama's life. She also keeps changing back and forth between her child self and her adult self. So again, we now see again the sadistic ballet teacher in the wheelchair, where we now see that like the now grown Asami which we can assume this is, like, shortly after Aoyama, like, went and saw him. Like, probably the same day. Yeah. Asami, you know, returns to the dance academy, goes over to him, and he basically just says, like, oh, yeah, I've been waiting for this. Please, please, you know, go ahead and do it. And she pulls out a fucking wire saw, which... If you've ever done any landscaping work, a wire saw is what you use to cut really thick limbs off of a tree. It is a long, thin piece of metal that has little serrated edges to it, and there are two little handles on each end of the cord. And the whole idea is that you take this long, thin metal cord, kind of double wrap it around a tree limb, and then you just kind of pull back and forth with each hand on the handle, and the wire saws through the tree limb. So she breaks this piece of shit out. That that takes care of the mystery of... Where his feet went. Well, not only that, but takes care of my own personal mystery of, what is she doing on the cover of, or the box art of this movie? Yes. Every time I looked at it. <laughs> what is this weird, like, wire that she has in her hands? Uh, so anyway... She slowly wraps this around the ballet teacher's head and slowly, steadily, methodically just starts pulling and saws right through his fucking neck and decapitates him. And he's playing piano, like, while she's decapitating him. You know, he's playing piano and eventually just becomes more and more like bonk, bonk, bonk as he's literally dying. And it's just so slow and methodical, and her face is just fucking stone serious and just blank as she's doing it. To give you a peek in uh, my psyche, I was very satisfied with her killing this guy. Fuck oh, yeah. this guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is my own bit of two cents, because I've not really run into any other kind of opinions on this bit. But in the flashback, we also see the housekeeper, Re. And it might just be because, you know, again, Asami is kind of changing and filtering through all the different women that are in Aoyama's life, right? Because of how she's kind of teed up in the scene, do you maybe get the impression that Ri might be Asami's mother? 
I thought she had some kind of connection to Asami, but I didn't really think too much into it. But I did the second time I watched it, I thought that there was something between the two of them. I wasn't a hundred percent sure of what, but uh, what? Why? What does? What makes you think about that? Just the fact that like she's kind of juxtaposed with the child version of Asami and. There are some kind of hints dropped earlier that they had a child that's no longer with them. Just, it, it's it's very, very tenuous at best, which is why I'm kind of saying this is kind of my two cents. Well, and also, too, it, you could even point to the fact that when Asami came into the house, she let her leave. Like, she let yeah. possibly her mom, I don't know, leave yeah. the house with before. And, you know, maybe it could have just been that she just wanted to sneak in when no one was there. Or she was like, I'm going to give her a pass. I, I'm not going to include her in what I'm about to. Because there's no way she would have known about the son. Because I don't think the son was even brought up. Like, I don't think he ever told her about his son. And she, up to that point, she had never been to his place. And the son could have very well been at the house when she walked in there. And Yeah. At this point, Aoyama wakes up from the drugs liquor and sees Asami kind of through a side you know there's like a kind of an opened door in a side room he sees her putting on this leather apron just this black slick butcher's apron that's like really high and wide and these big black leather gloves and we pan down and we also briefly see that she's killed poor gangu the dog leave um, the pets alone you fucking horror movies yep and um, he is dead laying in the next room, and you don't see it very quickly because she shuts the door. Yeah, I, it looks like she twisted his head or something, like yeah. broke his neck. I don't know. It made me sad. <laughs> As Asami shuts the door, she begins pushing all of the furniture to the edges of the room and lays down like a big giant tarp. She injects Aoyama with a paralytic agent that supposedly is going to, like, leave his nerves completely alert and sensitive, but, like, keeping him from actively, like, getting up and doing anything. And, by the way, again, just body horror torture stuff, she takes this syringe and injects it directly into his fucking tongue. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Pulls his tongue out of his mouth and just, like, sticks him right in the tongue with the needle. I was fucking waiting for, though, like, when she pulled his tongue out for her to just straight up chop it out. Yeah, because she clearly has a penchant for doing that. Yeah, know, but this, yeah. This, is, this is still pretty cringy, so. Yeah, so she cuts off his clothes with surgical scissors, and as she's doing so, she tells him that she's known full well this entire time that the audition was a scheme. As she's explaining all this to him, she breaks out a little tin full of acupuncture needles. And as she is, like, putting these acupuncture needles into him all over his body, she's telling him that, you know, just like everyone else in her life, he's failed to love only her as well. Which goes back to, like, the whole, like, please tell me that you will love me and only me. Yeah. Because when she goes into the house, she sees, oh, you have a son who you love, and you were married, and you have a wife, which you clearly still love because you have a photo of her in your house. So clearly, like, you're not loving just me. Yeah. And that is kind of the point at which he transgresses, in her opinion. Well, and, and also, too, like, like I think you had mentioned it, but there's a line of dialogue where she says, even his own son, like, you failed to love only me because yeah. you love even your own son which is an insanity because of course you 
should love your son, but... Yeah, and this whole scene is so fucking visceral. Partly because it's just shot in such a clinical way, but also partly because, like, there's no music. It is silent. It is just her very, like, quiet, musical voice talking, and the sound of all these fucking acupuncture needles. Yeah, it's her doing her performance. Again, this is probably something she's done multiple times already. I also describe the scene as methodical. Yeah. Extremely methodical. The sound of all the acupuncture needles just tinking against each other, and the sound of it, like, slowly puncturing his flesh in that, like, kind of way, and... As I did in the opening, she's taunting him and just saying deeper, deeper, deeper as she's sticking him in. Kitty, kitty, kitty. It's just in such like a taunting sing-song kind of way. It's just so fucked up. But the fact that it's in Japanese is even creepier to me as an American who doesn't know the language. Just the kitty, 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 kitty. Yeah. Like, it's almost like a noise you'd make at your pet or something. Yeah. But no, it's deeper, deeper, deeper as she's fucking shoving needles into him. Yeah. She is kind of straddling him as she's putting all these needles into his chest and into his, you know, like, neck and arms and stuff. And she fucking shifts herself up. So she can get closer to his face, but she just fucking, like, pushes herself up his torso on top of all the fucking acupuncture needles that she's already put in. Just, like, <laughs> war, like right over all of them. And I was just like, yep. <laughs> Um And... You know, she starts putting them into his face at this point in different spots as he's like lightly kind of just grunting, screaming because he can't really move or say anything. And she starts then putting these fucking acupuncture needles into his eyes, like into the soft flesh around his eyeballs. And the worst is that like when she's done with that part, one by one, she fucking like with her fingers just flicks the ones that are in his eyes one by one, and all you hear is that metal, like, ting, tong, tong, like the metal sound of her thumping them. And it's just that fucking visceral, like, and, and there's so many shots where the camera will, like, go to the side of them, and you just see the needles sticking out of his eye yeah. from the side, and it's just so unsettling. And, and that's the thing, too. There's not a lot of gore at all in this scene. It's just all stuff that's either, like, kind of off to the edge or implied. You see, like, little moments of, like, the needles piercing his flesh, or you see moments where he kind of shifts and you can see some of them in his face, but there's not a lot of outright gore, but the way that it's done, the soundscape of the scene, and then just her, like, sing-songy voice as she's saying deeper, deeper, and pushing these needles in while giving this giant long villain monologue about, like, why she's been wronged her entire life and all this other stuff is just... Oh, God. This, to me, was the most uncomfortable scene in the whole thing, so... She basically tells him while she's doing all this that, like, she can't tolerate his feelings for anybody else. Even his own son, like you said. So, you know, in her logic, he has other people in his life to love. Which is not fair, because she's all alone, and even though, like, she gives literally, like, everything 
everything of herself to him. Like, she opened herself up to him. You know, she bared everything to him, to be honest, you know, to gain his love. At best, she can only share him with others. And that's just not acceptable to her. Again, as she's telling him all this, she moves on to the next part. Well, before you get to the next part, this is just something. I mean, I could save it till the very end, but I figured I'd think this is a a good point to bring it up. This was a thought that crossed my mind, and it might be something that is irrelevant either way. Another reason why I want to bring it up is because there's another hallucination that will come up later. But if he had been 100% honest with her up front, even the night they went to the, they met for the first time at that restaurant and said, I am a widower. My wife died i have a son Uh, i just want to be up front with you about that i don't think it would have gone any further you don't think it would have gone any further she would have just left him alone at that point or yeah i I think she pretty much just would have ghosted him if i had to guess like i i seriously think that it would have just been one of those i'm not even gonna bother kind of things I don't know. Like, I I, I don't think it would have gone any further. Okay. Yeah, I just, I always wondered that too. And then going back to the the hotel scene, but I'll bring that back up on later on. Okay. She kind of now moves on to the next phase of his torture. So again, as she's like continuing to tell him all the things that we've been talking about, she takes this fucking like metal tourniquet cuff and puts it onto his leg, you know, just kind of mid, just above his ankle, essentially. And as she's doing this, you know, she joyfully happens to tell him, like, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, once I cut your feet off, you won't be able to go anywhere, and you'll just be all mine. And she breaks up the fucking wire saw, wraps it around his foot, and proceeds to yank and yank and yank and saw off his foot. And it starts really slowly, and you can hear the sound of it cutting through the meat of his foot, and eventually gets to the point where she is just going fucking wild, and just hands flying, yanking that thing, to the point where you hear it hit the bone and just like, rip, 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 yep. rip, <laughs> ping, and the wire like snaps to, and his foot just like thuds. And she just kind of picks his foot up and laughs at it and just chunks that shit across the room <laughs> and yeah. just like hits the glass sliding door. And you see it from the outside yeah. <laughs> of the house. So you just see like dead silence of like outside in the yard. This just like foot like hit the fucking glass door and just splat a little bit. I will say the as a fan of dark humor, this did make me laugh. Just the irreverence she showed to that fucking foot. <laughs> just- yeah. Tossing it away like it's fucking garbage. Now you know, like, she did the same shit with the uh, creepy teacher and yeah. probably done this a bunch of times, collecting feet. Um, So she now goes to work on his right foot. And right as she kind of gets started, his son, Shigehiko, returns home and immediately, like, walks into the scene in his living room. It's just like, oh, shit. And Asami, like, immediately jumps up. She grabs a mace sprayer out of her, like, fucking Dr. Murder bag that she has with her. <laughs> Just as Higihiko walks into the room and, like, sees his father, she sneaks up behind him, and then the scene, like, cuts immediately, and Aoyama, like, wakes up from a nightmare. All of a sudden now, he's still in the seaside hotel where Asami disappeared from earlier, and he looks over, and Asami's still laying in bed. And she's asleep. And, you know, him, like, waking up in a cold sweat from this nightmare, she kind of tells him, yes, you know, I accept your marriage proposal. And he's kind of thrown off guard a little bit by this because he's not actually asked her yet. 
you know, she just kind of says like, oh yeah, I know the purpose of this trip and blah, blah, blah. But like, yes, I'll, you know, I will marry you. And things, you know, feel like they're good. They lay back down. And just as he kind of drifts off to sleep with her again, we hear Asami's sing-song voice again saying deeper, deeper. So this is what I wanted to bring back up. So now, same hypothetical question posed to you. Say this scene actually happened, like this was the reality. He asked her for her hand in marriage at the seaside hotel and then laid out like the truth to her. I have a son. My wife died. I'm a widower. I'm a lonely. I will be a great husband to you, blah, blah, blah. What do you think she would have done? I don't know. I don't think things would have worked out regardless because she's not a well person whatsoever. I, I, I don't know. It, it's just kind of a hard hypothetical to say one way or the other. So I really don't have an opinion. What about you? See, I don't know either because it's so it's interesting because like as horrifying as the things that Asami has done, the movie also establishes feeling sympathy for her, but you can say the same with Ayami because his wife died and he's clearly been suffering from probably some sort of depression for several years. I wonder if she would be taken by surprise because she's so used to so many men just not being completely truthful with her. And if he laid it all out in that scene, I still don't think it would like work out in the end, obviously, because she's a serial killer. Yeah, I don't know. I think he might have been. I think she might have spared him and his family at that point of just being like, well... I don't know. See, I don't know. It's all hypothetical. It's just something I've been thinking about since I watched this movie. Yeah. Like, what if, what if, what if? I mean, I think to me the most obvious answer is, like, she would try to play along with it because it's what she wants, but she would come to the same realization eventually that, like, you know, the sticking point is still just, no, I want you to love me and me only, and that's just not how that works. Even if everything played out perfectly and she did accept, you know, the marriage proposal and they got married, I still think it would be one of those situations where she would just have a hard time understanding that, you know, he can't love just her and it's going to just loop back around to the same situation. Like, she's going to regress eventually, in my opinion. So anyway, all of a sudden, we kind of cut back to the present again and we see Asami trying to mace Higehiko. And she chases Higehiko up the stairs and, like, trying to spray him the entire way. He gets right up to the top of the stairs and is, like, laying on the ground on his back. And she gets, like, right up over him and he forcefully just kicks the fuck out of her, like, full body, kicks her down the stairs. I don't think it was, like, totally... I mean, obviously he's trying to defend himself, but I think it was more like a cowering kick and he just happened to nail her. Because it very much seemed like my defense in this situation. Roll up in a ball and squirm and throw my arms and legs and then hope for something. But (laughs) it works because he kicks her down like full on down the stairs. And then, you know, we cut back to seeing her down the stairs and clearly like her neck is broke. She's laying down splayed out like neck all fucked up. So Higehiko comes back downstairs and Aoyama like tells him kind of half dazed, half alive, you know, basically from bleeding out. Just, you know, hey, call the police. And as Higehiko's dialing up the police, Aoyama's on the ground just staring at Asami as she's dying, and he kind of further hallucinates her looking at him like she's totally okay, like neck all fucked up, but like she's fine, repeating exactly what she said on one of their dates about her like being excited to see him again. Oh yeah, it's so good, I was looking forward to this. And then the movie ends with a brief flashback to young Asami in her apartment tying her ballet shoes. So, that is the end of the movie. Man, where do Ayami and his son go from there? Yeah, really. (laughs) After the police arrive and be like, what the fuck? 
how the fuck do you recover from that? Yep. Do you think Asami in that last scene is almost kind of relieved that she's finally dying? I almost seem like she was content with her realizing she's dying. Well, she's she's dead like as soon as she hits the ground. So I don't think there's like even time for her to think. You think it's a hallucination on his part that he's seeing her body talk to him? Totally, because I mean, her neck's all fucked up. But yeah. like she's still looking and staring at him and talking fairly normal. Yeah. Like she wouldn't be able to fucking function and talk like if, if her neck was all fucked up like that. So I, it's, it's yeah. just him imagining it, I think. The first time I watched it, I thought that like she was still alive, but like she was more just mouthing the words to him and he was hearing it in his head. Yeah. But the, yeah, the second time it was more just like, oh yeah, he's, this is what he's thinking. Yeah. So to circle back around to something. So again, there's a lot of discussion back and forth about like whether this movie is a feminist movie, whether this movie is like a very misogynist movie. And I don't think there's like necessarily a right or wrong answer to like all of that. But the one thing I will say is that like this is definitely a movie where a woman who has been damaged physically, mentally, spiritually, in every way, like by patriarchal culture is essentially like transformed by that into this evil malevolent force as a result i mean hey maybe she started this crusade off as this is vengeance this is justice but it just got worse and worse from there exactly and that's that's definitely a way to read the movie for sure and that's a completely valid way of reading the movie where I am not like a hundred percent sure, I don't think that it's strictly a revenge on men movie because the bartender, and this is kind of where I like I brought this up a minute ago, the bartender is a woman. Yeah. So one of her victims is a woman. This isn't strictly a like get revenge on all the men kind of thing. I think it goes back to like the literal actual thing that she says to him as she's torturing Aoyama at the end that I wanted you to love me and me only, and you could not do that. Yeah, maybe the bartender was with one of the men that she had tortured, and so she went back and... Not necessarily that. Again, this is just kind of my read on it, but to me, we know that she was basically just kind of dumped by her parents, right. and she was left with this dance instructor, abusive uncle kind of guy. I think that potentially he, as a stand-in for her father, did not show her love whatsoever. He tortured her, he abused her in every way you can imagine. It's definitely inferred that it's like more than just psychological or basic physical abuse like him burning her on the leg. Because he could not be the father figure that she needed and wanted, you know, she fucked him up and she cut his legs off and she basically like broke away from him but also like she kept him from doing the same thing to other people essentially right and i think that the bartender is maybe kind of the same but as a stand-in for her mother because they talk about how like the bartender brought her in and kind of treated her like a daughter you know she says like oh yeah the, you know she was so nice and she gave me this job and we were very close and she was you know like a mother to me almost and it's the same thing. I think it's just kind of one of those things where like, okay, you could not give me the love and affection that I want, that I need from a parent figure. So you know what? Cool. You're gone as well. 
And I think from there, she kind of moves on to like, all right, well, I, if I couldn't get anything out of like a father or a mother figure in my life, then like, let me find an actual partner and a love interest. And that's where, okay, we move on to like the record executive at least and Aoyama at least and who knows how many other people in between. Yeah, that's a really good point. I didn't even catch on that. But now that you mention it, it I could see that being the case. Either that or the only reason why I brought up that maybe this woman was possibly involved with like one of the men that she had previously tortured so she went and like chopped her up was because she she immediately starts attacking his son when his son arrives i would like to think that if she had caught his son and was able to incapacitate him he was fucking dead like she was gonna just massacre him and then go back to torturing ayami I don't know. I I do like what you're proposing because the reason why I like what you're proposing a lot is I think it takes the idea again that I brought up of like her starting off maybe becoming like this punisher type of force of like punishing all these all these men who did these fucked up things. But then she loses all validity in her own cause when she does this to the bartender. And then that then she's just a deranged killer at that point. You can make the argument that she was deranged before that. But who's to say? But I do like to take more of the, I hate to say it, like, central viewpoint. I can totally see the feminist arguments for this movie, and I can totally see the misogynistic arguments for this movie. Yeah. But I think they're all valid. And when I say misogynistic, I don't mean that the movie's misogynistic for shitty purposes. I think it's making commentary on misogyny, like it's doing it on purpose. I think you can take both of those kind of points of view at the same time, so... Because as innocent as Ayami seems, as like during the regular scene by scene, he's doing a really fucked up dark thing. And then comparing him to Asami, Asami's a lot more open with her darkness, obviously, because she fucking tortures and kills people. But in her head, at least, she thinks she's doing it for a good reason. And it just so happens that a lot of the men that she punishes are fucked up men who possibly deserve to die, especially the piano teacher or the ballet teacher. Yeah. Another way, too, of considering it, if we're going to kind of lay all the cards out there, Aoyama, again, like, is 100% responsible for his actions. He is complicit in everything. Like, he's completely paved the way of his own destruction. Where his whole you're full of shit comes in is what I mentioned earlier. He wants a partner and he is lonely and blah, blah, blah. But he's more interested in the idea of this kind of ideal woman that he wants than he is in like actually putting in the emotional effort and responsibility of like creating a real relationship with someone. That's where his whole intentions are kind of bullshit. Now, on the flip side of that, we can 100% say that Asami is getting revenge for herself and all the other women who have been wronged. And she's kind of going on this righteous crusade to destroy, you know, these likewise destructive men. But then that also kind of falls apart on her end as well from a hypocritical standpoint because... Ultimately, as she herself says at the end, it's all just about, I just want you to love me how I want to be loved. Not because I want to put the emotional effort or responsibility into making a relationship work and realizing that, like, I have to be okay with the fact that, you know, you have other people in your life that you have to share your love with. Your son, family, just anybody else. Like, she's just as hypocritical in that sense that I just want you to love me the way I want to be loved. Yeah. If you can't give me that, then, like... 
fuck you. Yeah, it's it's two opposite yet equally fucked up ways to view relationships. Yeah. On one side, she's the super possessive. I'll do everything for you, but only if you do. If only if you focus all your love and affection for me and me alone. Yeah. And then he's doing the fucked up thing of manipulating someone into a relationship. Hey, or maybe on the surface, this is literally just the doesn't matter had sex meme. The movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Sorry, that that was a little tasteless of me, but I had to get that. <laughs> yeah, basically. Lost my foot. Didn't matter. Dick wet. <laughs> yeah, had, had sex. Yeah. And vice versa for her. Uh, had my neck broke. Doesn't matter. Had sex. Uh, um, dear Lord. But yeah, no, I'm I'm very glad we did this as our first foray into a non-English speaking movie. Probably should have brought this up up top. Not once did having to read the subtitles detract from the movie in any way. I know that some people have trouble, um, especially if they have the movie on more in the background as they're doing something else. It's harder to appreciate something that you have to read subtitles for. But that never even occurred to me. Like I was still able to fully consume it like I was any other movie yeah. and, and enjoy it. So yeah, I mean, I this is just my general film nerd side of things regardless if if a movie's good you're gonna pay attention to it like even if you have to read subtitles yeah absolutely you know, if, the, if the movie's well written if the acting's good like it's still gonna all come through regardless of the fact that you're having to like read words on a screen but i am definitely one of those like subs over dubs kind of people where most of the time the vast majority of the time the dubs are just not good so i just don't go there but yeah this was definitely a great movie to start with i mean this is kind of like the pinnacle of modern Asian horror movies. Um, and there's definitely a lot of good ones that we're gonna dig into going forward. Um, Japanese, Korean, Hong Kong, Thai, just all over the place. Um, so I'm excited to kind of go a little bit further in the future with some of these other ones. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if there's anything that we have said or not said or things where we might have not articulated our viewpoints the best, I guess... You know, definitely, I I would like to ask for a, a little bit of leeway because we are two white guys discussing an Asian horror movie about women taking revenge for abuse. So, you know, it's yeah. already kind of a can of worms to jump into for sure, but it's definitely something that let's have a conversation about it. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I'm interested in everybody's points of view because I've already read lots of different points of view on this movie while kind of doing some research and it's all interesting regardless i i absolutely hope we uh we did a good job of going through it scene by scene but yeah if we left something out or if one of the things that we said just seemed a little problematic or something you know let us know yeah we'd, lo- we'd love to talk about it and like i mentioned earlier i mean this movie like i described is a disco ball so i mean everybody's going to have a different take and view of it and i think they're all definitely worth hearing so absolutely cool cool Well, that's going to be it for this episode. We will be coming pretty quick with another one, hopefully. Um, We already know what the next couple are going to be. We are going to have some more guests on in the near future as well. Um, And hopefully we will have some other kind of fun and different episodes down the line as well, because... Derek is going to be in my neck of the woods pretty soon, so we're going to be able to actually do a little bit of recording in person. Yeah. So that'll be fun, and we can definitely get some different type of episodes put together for y'all, hopefully. Yeah. I, I After this one and the next one we're going to cover, I, I want some more lighthearted horror. <laughs> yeah. This one was heavy, and the next one's kind of heavy, too. So. so that wraps it up for this episode. 
Check us out on social media, Twitter and Facebook at Watch If You Dare. Definitely want to give a shout out to my little brother, Jesse Mansfield, a.k.a. Party Gator, for our music at the beginning and the end of every episode. Um, You can find more of his stuff on Bandcamp. And again, download future episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, etc. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review, please. So, that's that. And all I have to say is... Kitty, 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 kitty,